Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton. To get notices of our new Bible examination programs, go to our website, whtt.org, and enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right-hand side of the website. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're continuing on in the book of Hebrews. We've just finished chapter 7, and we'll be getting ready to get into 8, but Mark has got some really exciting background information that he wants to give us. And so, as we'd like to do, we'll open a word of prayer. Most Heavenly Father, thank you again that uh, we can gather here in your name to study your word and to uh, apply it to our lives to, so that we can show the love of Jesus to one and all and be beacons of truth, demonstrating that your son really was real and is the answer to the problems that we see by following him, and uh, we thank you for all this, and thank you for Mark's work in studying this issue, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good evening, Mark. Good evening. It's uh, good to be back with everyone. As we prepare to go into the 8th, ninth, and 10th chapters of the letter to the Hebrews, this is really the heart of the uh, lesson and the high point of the very detailed argument that the author is making here. It's, I think, important to get a little contextual background so that we have just a tiny bit of the same understanding of the Hebrew temple that the author and the recipients of this letter would have had. We have talked a good bit about the temple, particularly when we examined the Gospel of John. But, again, we need to get in the mindset to be able to understand these chapters uh, the way the original audience uh, would have in the first century. And we can ask the rhetorical question, how important was the temple uh, to the Judean nation, to the remnant of Israel? Well, at any time in their history, but uh, at, in the first century when this was written. And anyone in the uh, studio want to hazard a guess how important was the temple? Well, it was most important. It was the, the linchpin, if you will, of Judaism. I was going to interject that it was uh, about similar to the Mormon temple in Salt Lake City as to the Mormons, maybe as an, as an ocean. 
Well, that's a very good uh, idea because we can relate to that. Uh, most of us who live in areas near one of the LDS temples, and and it is a it is kind of a weak uh, copy of the temple temple of ancient Israel, Solomon's temple, and so on. Uh, so that's a very good uh, description, and we know how zealously they guard the uh, entrance to those temples once they are dedicated. So that's a, that's a good comparison. It, it was central to their identity, and it fostered a, an arrogance that perhaps lingers today in people who claim to be uh, descendants of those ancient peoples. But the, the arrogance sprang from the, the temple and the fact that it was proof that uh, the true God had chosen Israel and Israel alone as the place wherein he was going to dwell. It was proof that they were his chosen people, and it was central to their identity. It described who they were, and uh, they were very, very proud of it. The temple imagery pervades the Bible from the beginning of Genesis all of the way to the very end of the book of Revelation. And we want to just kind of set a little bit of context here because in chapters 8, 9, and 10, the author is going to be describing the Day of Atonement, the most uh, special single day on the ancient Israelite calendar. And he's going to be demonstrating how this pointed to Christ because, again, the audiences are considering falling back in their synagogue communities to being just good Judeans and kind of downplaying Jesus of Nazareth and they're perhaps hoping to evade the persecution against these believers in Jesus of Nazareth which is brewing and there's storm clouds on the horizon as this letter is uh, being read there in the first century uh, we know of course, historically, that uh, Nero, in about the year 66, accepted a delegation that may have included the high priest, but was sent by the high priest, uh, at least, from Jerusalem. And the result of this meeting was that Nero agreed to marry the full force of Rome to the power of the Judean leadership so that together they could crush this new uh, movement called Christians. Up until that time, the typical Roman viewed a Christian as as just another Judean or as a Greek who was trying to join themselves to the Judean community. As, as we talked about, as we went through the book of Acts, there were huge numbers uh, in every city where there was a synagogue of, of Greek-speaking people who were not Israelite by genealogy, but who understood the reality of the God of Israel in comparison to all of the pagan gods of Rome and the other authorized religions in the Roman Empire. So this temple was certainly uh, important, and our writer is going to use the imagery of the temple to really drive the point home in the minds of his audience that Jesus Christ is of far greater importance than the physical temple that then existed 
in Jerusalem and that Jesus Christ is far more important than the holy days and specifically the Day of Atonement that was observed at the temple in Jerusalem uh, every year. If we picture the Hebrew God as infinite, as a being without beginning, who is not confined by any of the dimensions that we know about today, uh, length, width, height, or time, or any variations or additions to those dimensions, uh, the, the Hebrew God was a God that existed before any of those dimensions existed, before anything we consider part of the universe existed. The God of Israel is infinite. And so I would picture this as a circle. Well, you could draw a circle on a board. There is no beginning point of a circle. There is no end point of the circle. But the circle does have a focus uh, in the middle, which we call the, the center of the circle. And the Bible tells us that the center of God's existence is mankind. And the book of Genesis tells us about how God created time and space so that he could create the earth and he created the earth so that man would have a home. And this was the view of the uh, Judeans of the first century and all the Israelites who preceded them in ancient times. But this is not the view that is uh, prominent today uh, in schools and textbooks and so on uh, because they want to teach that the universe is infinite and that religion is the creation of man's mind and had a beginning and is uh, is really the, the thing of small minds and thinking about the infinite universe is the thing of great minds. But this was not certainly the view in ancient Israel and it was a view that was gaining popularity throughout the Roman Empire as attested to by the great numbers of God-fearing Gentiles or non-Israelites who were attending the weekly readings at the synagogues uh, throughout the empire, as we saw detailed for us in the book of Acts. So we have this infinite God, but he, he is focusing on mankind who was created in God's own image. None of the rest of creation was created in God's own image. But God intended to share his nature with man, who was created a, a finite being in history between the beginning of history and the end of history. And as vast as that appears to be or may be or may prove to be, it is still finite compared to God who is infinite, infinite as we would pronounce in English. So God is focused on this finite being man, but man is created in God's own image. And I, I really believe that to tell us that man was capable of bearing the infinite life of God. 
And what we call the gospel today is the story of how God determined to impart his infinite nature to man who is part of the finite universe. And the creation account in Genesis is full of all kinds of subtle images to this effect. Adam is the name given to man, and the the word for earth is only has got an A added onto the end of Adam. Adam is created from the earth. His very name is closely related to the earth, and man is tied to the earth. Earth is something that God created just for his purpose of dwelling with man within the finite creation. And the the garden is uh, apparently in an elevated spot, the Garden of Eden, because the waters flow from it towards the four corners of the earth to nourish and give life to the earth. And all kinds of uh, good, pleasant things uh, grow there. And God walks there in close proximity with man, which is God's ultimate intention for man, is that they would be uh, very, very close and they would dwell together. And we know the story that Adam and Eve, they were instructed to tend the garden, to take care of it, but they disobeyed by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and uh, they were actually uh, banished from the garden, and they they were replaced as the guardians of the garden by the cherubim, who were given a flaming, flaming swords to uh, protect the garden. We could spend a lot of time on this imagery, but we need to move through this quickly. When we see the great error of, of man as encouraged by uh, the serpent was to eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil so that man could be just like God. And mankind, they are fruitful and they multiply, but instead of spreading God's kingdom and dominion throughout the earth, they spread violence and corruption throughout the earth. And so God cleanses the earth by waters. The waters of life flow out of the garden And in the flood, waters of judgment and purification flow out to the four corners of the earth to cleanse the earth. Even after this, the descendants of Noah, instead of spreading out to the four corners of the earth to spread God's garden and dominion, uh, in a sense, they gather themselves together and try to build a tower so that they can be like God. And and so it goes. But we jump forward to Israel in bondage in Egypt, and God brings them out with great deliverance. He lets them pass through the Red Sea, which is some type of cleansing for them. It kind of makes them into a purified nation that he can possess and dwell with, and it becomes the waters of destruction for the pursuing Egyptian army. Uh, The Israelites get to the other side where Mount Sinai is, and they are given the law, and they are told to build this tabernacle. And our writer in Hebrews is talking 
primarily about this tabernacle that was built there at Mount Sinai, although sometimes he's talking about the, the temple that exists at the time he's writing. The imagery is the same uh, in both, really. Uh, there were some changes made in order to provide portability for the original tabernacle that went around in the wilderness and was still used for hundreds and hundreds of years thereafter, after they came into the uh, land of Palestine, uh, up until the time that Solomon's temple was built, approximately 920 or 950 B.C. The tabernacle and or the temple consisted of three major areas. The innermost chamber was in the proportions of a perfect cube, and it was called the Holy of Holies. And this is a picture or a model of the infinite God who exists totally outside the realm of nature, totally beyond anything we can imagine as far as the size of the universe. He's infinitely large. He has no beginning. He has no end. And this Holy of Holies represents his throne room, which is really the infinite. And there's not a lot more I can say about that because it's hard to explain the infinite to uh, yourself or to anyone else. You can try, I suppose. The circle is my uh, best stab at it, for these purposes at least. The outer courtyard of the temple was intended to represent the earth that God created for man to dwell on. And so... The temple wasn't just a place to do religious ceremonies. It was something that had great significance. It had cosmic significance. It's representing the heavens and the earth. And I think we've pointed out that when people read Jesus saying, heavens and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away, these days assume that this is speaking of the universe and that they will, you know, pass away. But heavens in that context refers to the place where God dwells, which is beyond the known universe, and that certainly will never pass away. But the model of heavens and earth that God had created, the temple, that was about to pass away, and I believe that's what Jesus was speaking of. I believe that's what Peter was speaking about in First uh, and Second Peter, those letters, where he's talking about the uh, the worlds uh, being consumed and, and so on. He, he's talking about the Judean nation being utterly consumed and the temple, which was a representation of God's eternal kingdom, it was about to be destroyed as well. And, and there's a growing body of, of scholars who, who recognize this. It's, it's quite exciting to see all the new work that's out on this. In, in doing research, by the way, for this, I found a lot of great material by Baptists, presumably Southern Baptists, that have been put on the Internet, but they were written in the 1940s and the early 1950s. And they even quote from the Schofield Bible in some of these things, but, but they are describing all of the typology of the tabernacle 
and the temple. And typology, remember, is how these physical things, uh, places, things and people and events, it's uh, on in the Old Testament, are representing spiritual truths about Jesus. And we've already seen how Melchizedek uh, served as a perfect type of Christ as, a, as an eternal uh, priest and king. And even after reading the Schofield Bible for 20-something years, the hundreds of years of scholarship on the typology of the temple still kind of overweighed that, and, and Schofield's notes even talk about some of this. But by the time you get to the revised Schofield Bible, what, 1967, a lot of that goes by the wayside, and no one has really talked about typology much uh, since the end of the Second World War. And now we are seeing a resurgence of writings on this. It's very, very encouraging. I got a book a couple of weeks ago that was written back in 1940s. Well, it was written during the Second World War in the Netherlands while the Germans occupied the country by a college professor whose students had been transported to Germany to work in munitions factory, and all classes were suspended in the Netherlands for the duration of the war. And he probably put this book together and then got it published as soon as things got back to some semblance of normalcy after the war. It's called Between the Beginning and the End by J.H. Bavnik, and then the subtitle is A Radical Kingdom Vision. And it was only translated into English within the last few years. And it's an absolutely magnificent book that is describing all these things that I'm uh, sharing with you this evening, the symbolism of the Old Testament and how they all related to uh, Jesus Christ and how that history is something God created just to put mankind in. And, and that's where the name of the book comes from, between the beginning and the end. In other words, what happens during the history of the human race. And from God's perspective, it is the kingdom of God. And Bavnik was just on fire about the kingdom. He spent really the first half of his life in the Indies, which were a Dutch colony before World War II. And he did mission work to Hindus and Muslims uh, throughout Indonesia. And he taught uh, what's called missionology there. And then the latter part of his life, he came back to teach at a seminary in the Netherlands, but he was considered one of the greatest authorities on mission work, particularly to uh, Hindus and Muslims, uh, anybody in the world. But this book describes the vision that inspired him to do that, which is to expand the borders of God's kingdom to the four corners of the earth, just as he had intended for Adam and Eve to do in the beginning. But, of course, he knew that they would not be able to do that. And he knew that Christ would have to come to uh, restore all things, as we saw stated over and over again in the book of Acts. And so Christ has come, and he did restore all things that God intended for the Garden of Eden. But we have to have spiritual vision to understand all of this. And, again, you can, you can go to old 
Baptist uh, writings on this and see some great stuff. You can read things like this new translation of Bavick's work. There's a lot of work published recently by Westminster Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania, which uh, describes this universal vision of a kingdom of God encompassing all of the physical creation. So it's quite exciting, but I guess it's not as exciting as some of the hit TV shows or NFL football or whatnot. But but there is a a growing number of people who are getting really real about this about the spiritual nature of the kingdom and the understanding that the real temple that God intended was not something physical built in the physical city of Jerusalem, but it is a spiritual and it is built up of human beings who figuratively form the living stones of which the ultimate temple uh, is built. And, of course, this is the closing act in the book of Revelation, which is the closing scene of God's entire revelation to man, uh, the Bible. Again, it's just very important to understand in these modern times that God's ultimate purpose was always to create a spiritual temple and that the physical tabernacle and the physical temple of ancient Israel were just shadows of what God ultimately wanted to create. Because, again, we have our, well, I almost used a derogatory adjective, our friends and relatives who are caught up in uh, the Christian Zionist dispensational idea and they're trying to rebuild a third physical temple in Jerusalem to bring about the Battle of Armageddon. And we have a cattle rancher in Nebraska who's spending every penny he's got trying to breed the perfect red heifer for one of these temple ceremonies, and uh, I had no idea how difficult it was, but the rabbis uh, write that if they find, I think, more than two white hairs using a magnifying glass, that the heifer is disqualified and is not a true red heifer. So uh, there's this poor rancher who is breeding red Angus cows, and he's trying to get rid of all of the white and the black hairs to make it uh, purely red. The rabbinic legends state that only eight times in ancient Israel's history did they find a red heifer pure enough to use to um, burn and make this uh, water purification using the ashes of the heifer. So it was something uh, incredibly difficult to come by even in ancient times. But again, that was that was a and that, was, that, and that was before that was before the rabbis had magnifying glasses. Uh, yes, exactly right. So it's a lot more, as they've added more and more tradition through the centuries, you know, now it's a very, very hard standard. But again, so many of our countrymen are totally deluded by placing the physical ahead of the spiritual. This, I don't know how they can read this letter to the Hebrews because it totally destroys the entire foundation of their religious existence, and yet they somehow try to harmonize all of this in their mind. So we just want you to know that the temple has significance. The courtyard represented the planet Earth that God created for man, and the seas, it was a bronze sea, and the courtyard 
uh, a laver full of water that represented the oceans on the earth and the land. The altar was very much part of the earth out there, and that altar, bronze altar in the courtyard, corresponds to the cross on which Jesus died because it was the place where all of the sacrifices of the law of Moses were offered, and Jesus offered himself on the cross once, and that replaced all of those sacrifices, and it did more than all of them combined could ever do. And that altar was part of the earth, and Jesus became part of human history. And, and there's cosmic significance to that, as Bavnik writes in his book. And, and this is the most important thing that's ever happened in human history, is that God the infinite became man the finite so that he could purify man by living a pure life under the law of Moses, becoming, you know, that red heifer was so hard to find as the perfect sacrifice. Think about it. That red heifer points to Jesus Christ because as hard as it was to find a red heifer, it was even harder to find a human being who was living by the law of Moses without failing. Jesus was the one and only human who could ever do that. And so the red heifer pointed to that fact. And rebreeding a, a red heifer today is completely useless and a waste of time. But again, so many of these people, and, and that's why we we have the, the vigils and so on, because these people are they're living in a delusional world. They've set the physical and the carnal as ahead of and as superior to the true spiritual things that God wants us to point to. And the, the temple and the tabernacle will point us to the spiritual truth of Jesus if we only let them. So uh, we're out of time this evening, but next time we want to talk a little bit more about some of the details of the uh, tabernacle and the holy place, the holy of holies, and the furnishings in that, and so on, so, so that we can get our minds prepared to understand the Day of Atonement ceremony, which involves all of these things, and what it meant to the readers of this letter back in the first century. Great. Thank you, Mark, for that very intriguing lesson. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.